Um, Bow your heads and join me in praying. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I'm especially grateful for the Sermon on the Mount. I pray that you would help us to understand these Beatitudes, and I pray as the preacher, Lord, that you would help me as I speak. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning and, uh, and welcome to church, whether it's on Facebook or here in the sanctuary. Um, I'm Mike McDonald, the senior pastor, and this morning I want to talk about what happens when a person becomes a Christian. There are a number of different ways we can refer to that transformation, moving um, from being maybe a seeker to actually, uh, we might say, surrendering your life to Christ or giving your heart to the Lord or asking Jesus into your heart or becoming born again. There's like a dozen different ways to refer to this. Um, the Apostle Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. But what does that look like? So this morning, how can you, mark, how can you see the, the marks of the new creation? What is the difference? What, what does the new creation look like when a person becomes a believer? Now today, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes give us a contrast of the old person versus the new person. It's um, sometimes subtle at first when you take somebody who's a Christian and put them next to someone who has not yet become a Christian, but if you're around them for a little while, you start to actually see what the new creation looks like. And Jesus tells us what his master's business is. At one point in his time with his disciples, he said to them, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know what the master's business is, but I've told you, you know what the master's business is. And here in the Beatitudes, we, we see the work that God is doing in the life of those who surrender to him, who make them or make him their Lord and Savior. And Jesus describes it as a blessed type of life. Blessed are those. Sometimes people want to translate that word blessed as happy, um, but that's, that's too flippant. It's too um, uncertain. Happiness comes and goes. It's more of an emotion. And blessedness is far different than happiness. It's more like the shalom that the um, Hebrews would say. It's a peace, a wholeness to your life. You are under the blessing of God Almighty when this is a description of your situation. And Christians long for more of this and should long for more of it. But it's partial now in our lives but through the rest of our lives, it will be increasing as well. Now, the skeptic, the person who has not yet become a Christian, is chasing after the cares of the world. And if you read what um, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, that is a chasing after the wind. It's futile. You will never get to the place of this kind of blessedness. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding that belongs to the believer alone. And the blessedness here is describing what that person's life looks like. It's blessedness in the kingdom of God versus futility, a chasing after the wind in the world's ways. So a lot is at stake here. Now, what I'd like to do is I'm going to set up the new sermon series for the summer. I want to talk about what the Beatitudes are not, and then I want to talk about what they are and then how to respond to them. So that'll be kind of my outline. Set up the series, what the Beatitudes are not, what they are, and then how to respond. So we are starting today into what is known as ordinary time. Um, but that's not a helpful word. It comes from the, the word ordinal, which is the ordering or the counting or the numbering of weeks. 
There are 33 or 34 weeks in ordinary time. We typically have the green uh, frontal and, and the green color. That, that's the color of ordinary time, but it's the time after Pentecost, and it's counted typically in numbering weeks. How many, you know, it might be the 20, 20th week after Pentecost. In other words, it's life in the Spirit. Two weeks ago, we heard that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in the lives of believers, and we are in the life in the Spirit. So in ordinary time, we tend to look at things that describe that life. So the the lectionary has us in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not exactly following that order. I'm going to take the Sermon on the Mount section by section this summer and go through this for ordinary time. But the Sermon on the Mount is not easy. In fact, many people are confused about what it's meaning is and how to implement it and what God even intends for us. So we've called it, uh, the sermon series, we've called it the Sermon on the Mount, a mountain climber's guide. And the picture on your bulletin uh, shows people climbing up a mountain. And we're going to try and set up this as a way to understand how to ascend this mount, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor in the 20th century, a phenomenal preacher, says this, There is no section of the New Testament that has been so misunderstood and abused as the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we need a mountain climber's guide, because it is misunderstood and abused, misinterpreted, misapplied. And almost all of the commentaries and the scholars that I read had a statement similar to that in their work. The Sermon on the Mount is confusing to people, and it is misinterpreted often. So hopefully we're going to set it set ourselves straight under this teaching this summer. Now, what it is not, what the Beatitudes are not. First of all, it's not just a call for special saints, those Christians that are super holy or something. The Beatitudes are describing the new creation that is true of every Christian. It's for all of us. If you're a Christian, this describes what's going on inside and how it's coming out in your life. It's also not a checklist to get saved. If I want to be a Christian, I have to do these eight things, and then I'll become a Christian. Nor is it a way to earn points with God. If I do these things, God will be pleased with me and therefore bless me. It is definitely not that. Nor is this a list of eight types of gifts that eight different people might have. So there are places in the scripture where some have gifts of teaching, some have gifts of leadership, some have gifts of serving. There's probably 30 different spiritual gifts. This is not eight different gifts that eight different people would have, all eight of these are for all Christians. It's also not the B attitudes, telling you how to fix your attitude. The word is more related to the beauty, beautific. It's a beautiful thing. So these are not B attitudes to make yourself happy. So let's just push that aside. Now here, now let's get into what these actually are. The context here is Jesus speaking to his disciples that he has called forth from the crowd. Huge crowds of people surrounded Jesus constantly. And they were, some were believers, some were just interested in the show, some were skeptics. And it says this in verse five of Matthew, uh, verse one of Matthew chapter five, seeing the crowds, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he saw the huge number of crowds of people in the crowd. And then he went up onto the hillside that surrounds the northern shore of Galilee. And he sat down, which was a posture that a rabbi would take when he was going to give a teaching. And his disciples, the people that were coming 
to hear his message, that were agreeing with the kingdom, that were placing their trust in him as the Messiah, they came to him, and then he opened his mouth, which is just a, a way of saying he started to teach them. So he's speaking to people who are his disciples, his students. They are people of the kingdom. All right, so that's who he's addressing here. Um, and he's teaching them about the kingdom. If you think of his first message, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. In Christ, God's kingdom was made available in a new and deeper way. And now the Beatitudes are the description of the character of kingdom people. Let me say that again. The Beatitudes are the description of the character of kingdom people. Scholars have recognized that there's an interconnectedness to these Beatitudes, these eight Beatitudes. And you could argue if there's a a ninth one, but basically it looks like eight. But one goes to the second, goes to the second, and there's a chain. They're connected. Um, One of the early church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, called it a golden chain. And I already mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones from the 20th century. He actually saw it as a ladder of the first three go up to the fourth and then come down the backside, if you will. And I'll try to explain that. I actually really like how Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones lays that out, and we'll look at it that way. Um, But Jesus personally, in his person, exemplified all eight of these. All eight of these Beatitudes are seen in him. And if you want to understand them more fully, just look at his ministry. Just look at his life. If you want to know what it looks like to be, to mourn, let's say, look at him. To be poor in spirit, look at him, his dependence on the Father. So what I'd like to do now is just briefly walk through these eight and show you how they're connected. Um, We easily could do eight weeks on this and take one each week, but I just don't have the time. I want to get through the whole Sermon on the Mount this summer. So I'm just going to show how this golden chain is connected. And I'm going to use Lloyd-Jones's idea of the first three are building up to something in the fourth one, and then then it goes down the backside. And I want you to recognize these are spiritual things, more so than physical. Although there is a physical element and an outplaying, it's not poverty. It's poverty of spirit. It's not mourning like, like anyone that would be mourning someone's death is. It's mourning the situation in the world. So we're, we have to understand these from a spiritual perspective. And they seem to get more difficult as you move forward until you get to the eighth one, which is if you're going to be a kingdom character, you will be persecuted just because of the way that the kingdoms are clashing. So understand there's, there's a difficulty level that's different in some of them, and they're connected one to the next. But let's start with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Note also a bookend here. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the eighth one, those who are persecuted, um, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it seems to bookend these with eight. These are people who know their dependence upon God. They are poor in spirit because they recognize, I cannot please God in my own power. I am woefully curved in on myself, and I have nothing to bring to him except my brokenness and my sin and my need for him. That is poverty of spirit. And what the secular man or woman thinks is, well, nobody's perfect, but I'm a basically good person. That is not poverty of spirit. That's actually self-centeredness. I'm basically good. But the the Christian comes to the place where you recognize God is perfect and good and holy, and I am not. I realize my utter dependence on him. Now, I said Jesus perfectly personifies all these. Jesus was without sin, but he was super clear that he depended on the Father 
all that he heard from the Father, he said. He only did what he saw the Father do. He perfectly demonstrated this dependence on God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think about, um, when I looked at this one, I immediately thought of Revelation 3, 14, the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. The one in Laodicea, um, it's, the Spirit says to them, you think you're rich, but you're not. And then he gives this list. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the difference. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes their need, whereas the other person thinks they're doing great and they're rich. And you're not. But then we come to this, this place of poverty of spirit and come to God. We, we mourn our situation. We grieve that this is the case. It's not what we were meant for. And so we lament our own sin. We also mourn for the world. We look around at the world that is hurting and it, it breaks our heart. When Jesus showed up at Lazarus's tomb and he saw all the people weeping and mourning, he grieved. He, he wept. He was mourning for the brokenness of the world. And the character of the kingdom mourns for their own brokenness as well as for the brokenness of the world. And then the meek. The meek do not insist on their own rights or getting their own ways. The world is full of people who are trying to push themselves forward. They're trying to make something happen. Or that terrible, unbiblical saying, God helps he who helps himself, the meek do not help themselves. The meek do not push themselves forward. Even Jesus was described as not breaking a reed or a rush or snuffing out a smoldering wick. He was so gentle. It doesn't mean he was weak. He was certainly not weak, but he was gentle. He was mild. He, was, he didn't insist on his own way. He surrendered his life to the will of the Father. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. It's not the ones who are going to try and take it by force or ambition, or asserting themselves. So the first three, poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness, theirs is the kingdom. Those who mourn will be, will be comforted, and they will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. So these are kind of the first three ascending up. And then the fourth one is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Now, as I said, there's a partial fulfillment of these in this life, and there's a lot more to come. But the Christian starts to find, I'm, I'm welcomed into the kingdom of God. I am comforted in my mourning. In my meekness, I'm given all things. I know treasures in heaven and the, that eventually the earth will be renewed and the believers will live on it. It's, it's all mine. In Christ, I already have all these things. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. So what is righteousness? Well, there's a legal, there's a moral, and there's a societal element to it. Legally, being righteous is being justified and right before the judge. There's a courtroom metaphor here. Before God, I am guilty. I am under my sin until I repent and turn to him, and then I receive the forgiveness of Christ. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on that cross, Jesus took my, my penalty took my guilt, took my shame, and gave me his righteousness. And so there's a legal element that's been satisfied for the believer. There's a moral one. It's not just imputed righteousness. It's actually becoming like Christ. This is starting to happen in the life of the believer. It's not perfected. It's a lifetime of work, but it is starting to happen where 
I'm now starting to want the right things. I want to live God's law. I delight in his law, even though in my, in my, the old person in me, there's still a tension, but I delight in that. So there's this, this longing, this desire, and God begins to satisfy it. And then it goes out to the societal level where we look around and we realize there's all kinds of brokenness and injustice, and we're dealing with that right now. The Christian hungers and thirsts for it to be made right. So now we went up three, got to this one, and now coming down the backside. And there's a connection, too, between the first three and the, and the next three. The merciful are connected to those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. But it's because I've already received the mercy of God that I can have mercy for other people. And it's connected to being poor in spirit. I bring nothing to God except my brokenness, and then he is merciful to me. And therefore, I'm merciful to others. And then God is merciful to me. And Jesus told a parable of an unmerciful servant who was forgiven a huge debt and turned right around and demanded 100 bucks from somebody that owed him money. And all the other servants of the kingdom were incensed about this. That's not right. God has been so merciful to you, should you not have been merciful to others? Blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. And being merciful means alleviating the effects of sin in the world, not standing in judgment over it. This person understands with a kingdom view that all people are sinners and broken, and therefore their lives are a wreck. And we look at that, and we have the mercy of God for it, and we think, what can I do to help this situation? How can I help alleviate that pain? I'm poor in spirit, and therefore I'm merciful. Next is the pure in heart. Those who mourn their sin desire God's purity in their life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can't be in God's presence with sin. He's holy, and, and those who come into his presence will have to be holy with him. Be holy, for the Lord is holy, is what uh, Leviticus 11 says. We, we are going to be cleansed, and it's starting in this life, and it will be carried forth. But it's not just moral purity, it's also purity of mind. It's a single focus. We're double-minded often, having a singleness of purpose. Think for a minute about the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. Not some, not 90%. All of it. That is purity of heart. It's being single-minded. Later, Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. The person who is single-minded, is coming to the Lord. Now, you got to recognize, God has to do this in your heart. You cannot purify your heart. Yet at the same time, the scripture says, put to death whatever is evil in you, whatever is of the old person. You have work to do, but it's God who's at work within you. It's his work to purify our hearts. But we can resist that, or we can work with him and cooperate. Blessed are the peacemakers. So, not the peacekeepers. We know a lot of people who just want to keep the peace. Don't stir the waters. That's very different than a peacemaker. They're actually working to heal the world. And it's the meek person that is able to be a peacemaker because of their meekness. If you go in impulsively trying to assert your will on a situation, well, we see that all the time. It does not usually make peace. It makes more conflict. So you have to be meek. See how the, the first ladder climbing up actually supports the backside of the ladder? I'll give you some practical things, and I'm borrowing these from Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Um, taming your tongue. 
So not speaking sometimes is part of being a peacemaker. We open our mouths and do more damage. James says the tongue is like a fire, a wildfire, and it just burns the forest down. So taming our tongue. Looking at situation with kingdom eyes. When you see the conflict in the world, you look at it and you go, okay, this is an opportunity for God's kingdom to break in. I could see why this problem exists because of the sinful situation here. You, you, have, you have heavenly eyes instead of just trying to fix this world. And you are doing things like feeding your enemy, pray for your enemies. You're serving those who don't necessarily warrant it yet. It's a proactive thing. And then just personally, you want to be an approachable person. You don't want to have some agenda in it. You want to be approachable so people will want to talk to you. These are the four things that Lloyd-Jones recommended as practical tools. And then finally, blessed are the persecuted. Well, that's because of the clash of kingdoms. If you're coming into God's kingdom, there is a real war happening. And so look at what happened to Jesus. It was met with resistance. And those who follow Jesus will also find such resistance. But again, the kingdom of God belongs to those. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Not because you're doing something that's not good. For righteousness sake. You are living the Christ-like life. You are becoming more like him. You're living in the spirit and people don't like it. So they persecute you and there's a clash. He's saying expect it and even rejoice in it. The disciples in, I think it's Acts chapter 4, they were beaten because they were proclaiming the name of Jesus. And when they left, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They actually rejoiced in that because it showed which kingdom side they were on. So these last three, you will receive mercy, you'll see God, and yours is the kingdom. Now, quickly an application. Imagine for a minute what the world would look like if everyone in it was living all eight of these characters, characteristics. It would be incredible. I want you to imagine it because it is the future. There is a day coming when all people will be like this. It will be a glorious thing. Just try to imagine it. Look forward to it. Set your hope on that thing to come. Secondly, know that this is God's blessing upon you. As I started with, those who chase after the world find it chasing after the wind. It's futile. You will not be satisfied in your soul to try and get the earth and live in this world system. This is true blessedness. And when you get to the end of your trying and your striving, and it still hasn't satisfied you, take a look at what God is offering. He's saying, this is the blessed life. This is where shalom peace is. This is where kingdom happiness is. And he's going to work this in you. And he says this, though. Um, this is actually the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. So you have a part to play, but God is at work in you. And right here, we see the master's business. We know what he's trying to do. He's building this kind of a character into you. And blessed are you when this happens. Now, I want to say a prayer. I know I've flown through this. There's a lot of content in here. But this sets us into the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at what the kingdom life looks like and the character of the person who has surrendered his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, we're going to pray. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Would you pray with me? Lord, I've gone quickly through your Beatitudes. Uh, Lord, I pray that those who hear would understand. I pray, Lord God, for a longing for more of this in our lives. Lord, I pray for any who have not trusted in you, that you would give them this grace in their life, 
that they would start in with poverty of spirit and come to you, the true fountain of all life. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.